0: Thanks for joining us today on It's Your Right. An important topic we want to cover, specific to supporting victims of crime in Stanislaus County, is to bring some clarity and knowledge surrounding the U-Visa process. And today we're going to be speaking with immigration attorney Megan Fulinchek and Chief Deputy Jeff Lagero with the Stanislaus County District Attorney's Office. So we want to start by doing a brief little get to know you. So people can get to know you and see what a typical day looks like for you and a little bit of maybe why you chose this particular field. Ms. Fulinchek, would you like to introduce
1: yourself to, to our listeners? Sure. So my name is Megan Fulinchek. I'm an immigration attorney in uh, Stanislaus County. My office is, is in Modesto. Um, I do practice immigration law and that includes mostly family petitions, U visa, all types of visas. And also removal defense, so helping people when they're in immigration court um, appear in in that capacity as well. Um, The reason why I chose immigration law was uh, really just kind of lucky (laughs) happenstance. (laughs) So often happens Mm -hmm. with life. (laughs) Uh, In law school, I was looking for um, an internship and I saw an immigration ad posting and I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. Um, so I went and interned, and then I just fell in love with it from there. I always knew that with my law degree, I wanted to to be in a field where I felt like I was helping people, and it was a, sort of a happy area of law. And immigration definitely checks all those boxes, which can be hard to find in the law field. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. Mm-hmm. Chief Legero. Uh,
2: thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name's Jeff Legero. I'm a chief deputy district attorney here at Stanislaus County District Attorney's Office. Um, I've been with the DA's office since 2005 and, uh, prior to that, I was a police officer. I started in law enforcement, uh, in 1989 and, uh, I've been in law enforcement my entire adult life. I, uh, am currently the chief that's responsible for handling the U visa, uh, petitions that we receive. And it's, uh, just one of the duties that, uh, we have in our office, and uh, I am interested in the process. I'm interested in the uh, the possibility of uh, providing relief to those victims of crime that we deal with on a regular basis, and I think the U-Visa process is a, is a necessary tool to aid those victims to make sure that they could come forward and, and uh, report uh, any time that they've been a victim of a crime.
0: Right. And I guess a little bit, you know, I, we thought here in the victim services unit and that's, you know, the unit that I'm a part of, I'm a victim advocate here. um, And for my particular caseload, um, I mentioned before in our introductory podcast that I'm the mass victimization advocate. um, But, you know, so I may not handle as many victims who have U visa needs, but I know that's definitely something that's very important and critical um, to help support victims who are really supporting us in this, you know, criminal justice process so they can make sure their voice is heard and also have some protections. Now, some people listening may think, what on earth is a U visa? What is this phrase that they're talking about? Um, Ms. Vilenczek, would you be able to share a little bit
1: about just what is a U visa? Sure. Um, so the, the U visa is a program that was established by Congress and it's basically a program that allows um, law enforcement to, to certify that someone has been helpful to them. And then it allows that person then to use that certification and apply for status in the United States. So um, the first would be the U visa. And then after they've had the U visa, they can usually obtain a green card or a permanent residency. So it's a very helpful program. Um, you know, for victims and also for law enforcement because it's it's basically a twofold program. So it's there to help law enforcement so they can keep witnesses and things that they need to help prosecute cases inside the United States. And they don't have to worry about being deported by immigration if they were to come forward. And it also helps victims because it allows victims to, um, you know, come forward not have so much fear of law enforcement, which used to be um, the undocumented population would not call law enforcement because they were scared to be deported. Um, so this takes away a lot of that fear and also helps them to gain legal status through this program.
0: I guess we can get into really, right, I have so many questions to think, okay, well, who qualifies? Okay, but you mentioned a law enforcement agency. So where do we start, right? It's this big, this big thing. Um, so it kind of sounds like we talked about that victims of crimes um And are there certain
1: crimes that qualify? Yes, not every crime that you're the victim of is going to qualify you for a U visa. Um, There's a long list of crimes. I'm not going to go into all the specifics. It's, you know, it's like 20-something crimes that could qualify you. Um, But normally, they're going to be the more violent crimes against a person. So kind of how I explain it to my clients is, you know, if someone came up to you and maybe they just took your wallet and then they left, you're probably not going to qualify for a U visa. But if that same person who robbed you used a gun or hit you or attacked you in some way, you might qualify for a U-Visa. So um, what I usually tell people is it usually has to be something kind of violent. Um, It's not just, you know, your standard. Someone stole the trash can from outside my house. You're not going to qualify.
0: Chief Legere, what do you have to add in your process? Right. Because you get some of these requests. So as a prosecutor, what is it that you kind of look out for?
2: It's exactly as Megan is saying, you know, there's, um, there's specific crimes that are listed that qualify, but that's not um, the only, you know, list that we work off of. There, if there are crimes that are similar to that list, that the uh, certification can extend to cover victims of those types of crimes.
0: Now we're kind of talking about this certification. I know it might kind of go into both areas because, you know, law enforcement being probably, you know, a policing agency, but then we're also at the district attorney's office considered a law enforcement agency. So both can get these kind of requests that we're talking about.
2: Yes. The judges can certify Mm -hmm. um, if they've taken a plea in a criminal matter. Uh, So there's a number of agencies that can certify and by certification, our role uh, at the DA's office or whatever the certifying agency is, we're basically saying that this victim is a victim of a qualifying crime and they have been helpful with the prosecution or helpful with law enforcement or we expect them to continue to be helpful or they're likely to be helpful in the future. So it's really kind of limited uh, our, our role is limited to just certifying that they, that the individual victim meets that criteria.
0: Right. Now it makes me think of something when I've had, you know, answered the phone on our main line and mm-hmm. people are asking about eVisas and it's like, oh, okay, well sure, there's this certification, but pause because before we fill this out, you know, I know that there's kind of a, a time frame in which that's kind of that particular certification is valid. So then we maybe want to go into, you know, asking you a question, um, Megan, about what is the first step once someone's a victim of a crime? Because, you know, to have an immigration attorney or to not, but, you know, this certification isn't the first step really in the the process potentially, because once you get that, you need to do something with it. So can you maybe kind of talk a little bit about, you know, what's the first step once someone's maybe been the victim of a violent crime, what they should do to kind of begin this U visa process?
1: the the certification does come early on because that you you need that before you can proceed with anything else so if for some reason law enforcement is not willing to sign for you then then you're really stuck and and you can't you cannot submit further to immigration so that's that's one of the early steps definitely is certification so basic for what i ask for when my clients come to my office and they say i'm interested in a u visa what i usually ask for is you know some evidence that they've been the victim of a crime so Usually that is the police report. Um, It can be, you know, any kind of law enforcement reports that they have. Sometimes they just have, if it's an ongoing active investigation and they can't get reports, it can just be someone's business card. But you want some sort of evidence that shows that you've been the victim, um, and you're going to need that also when you apply later with immigration. So what would happen is you would write to law enforcement, ask them to sign the certification request for you, it's not always done in writing, but typically that's, you know, how attorneys were doing it. <laughs> um, but it can be done in person, especially if you have a good relationship with the district o- attorney's office, you're working with your victim advocate, they can help you kind of get this to the person it needs to go to. And then once law enforcement has signed it, they also put a date and that date is very important. And that date is the date that um, that you calculate the expiration date from. So once you've received the certification, you have six months to file your application with immigration or that certification expires, and you have to ask for another one from law enforcement. So I think that's the expiration date you're probably asking kind about. Kind of like the, the six months type. That starts the six-month clock running, um, and you basically have to have your application submitted and received to immigration before that date, or the certification expires, and you have to backtrack and go back to law enforcement and ask them to sign another one for it someone's been the victim of one of these qualifying
0: crimes, they come to your office because maybe they've heard, oh, there's a U visa that's available. Can you kind of just give us an example of what that looks like
1: and what steps are for that victim? Yeah, so so what I would do if they came to my office for the first time is I would sit down with them and we do a screening. So this is an immigration screening and this is just to make sure they're not going to have issues with Maybe any other part of their case, and also to make sure that they've been the victim of a crime that qualifies, and it's been something that's more serious. So, like I said, sometimes people will come to me and they're like, "Oh, I, I would like a U visa," and they show me a paper where someone maybe pickpocketed them, and I'm like, "This is you're not going to qualify." <laughs> um, so that's that's kind of the first step. So you do a, kind of an in-depth screening with that person, and then we talk about what the U visa timeline looks like. And I think that's important to know because it's a very lengthy process, but there are some parts that go by quick, like the certification and the the time frame you have to submit your package to immigration. Unfortunately, immigration doesn't abide by the same rules and they have all the time they want to just think about your case. <laughs> <laughs> what? No. I know. No, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Okay, so I guess that was a question
0: of you know is it best, but how is it helpful? Does someone need an attorney to try to apply for a U visa?
1: You do not necessarily need an attorney. There are people who, who do it on their own. There are instructions that you can find online um, on immigration's website that can walk you through step-by-step how to do it and what that looks like, what you need to submit Um, how long you have to submit it, things like that. There are also, um, there's definitely local services, like there are some agencies that if you have certain types of crimes, they can help you, they can provide like pro bono service. Um, There's workshops and things you can attend. There are some low cost options. Um, So not necessarily everybody will need an immigration attorney, but I think it does make the case go more smoothly generally for most people. What I tell clients is Usually, you know, if you're doing your own U-Visa, this is the one time in your life you're going to do this. And this might be the fifth or sixth U-Visa case I've done this week. And I think that is the difference. Right. You have the knowledge, the
0: problem-solving, these complicated forms, those yes. sorts of things. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, I guess kind of with that example of a process, question I know that I think of is, you know, both of you can respond, How how long after a crime happens can someone... Apply for a U visa and does it depend on, you know, the DA's office filing charges against somebody?
2: I'll, I guess I can answer the <laughs> DA part. Uh, the, uh, there is no statute of limitations for the request to uh, or fu- uh, providing the or petitioning with the I 918 supplement fee. So we receive those whenever somebody um, believes that they are a victim of a qualifying crime and uh, they'll submit, we'll get them years later. Uh, it's not dependent on a prosecution. It's not dependent on even the, the filing of a police report. I would say it's probably much more difficult to prove that they were a, a victim of a, a particular crime without some sort of documentation, especially if it's been you know, many years since the, the crime allegedly happened. So typically we see... Um, the U visas is uh, close in time, um, sometimes as short as a couple weeks after the, uh, the incident. We have had uh, one as old as 25 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we get the information. Typically, there will be a police report that documented the incident. That will be submitted. So we'll be able to, to review that. We take a look at the records that we have. Uh, we try and get uh, additional reports if necessary, photographs of the injuries or whatever the case may be, and uh, and then we go through the certifying process if it qualifies.
1: I would say Jeff is is, is right on target there. <laughs> um, there is no there's no statute of limitation. There's no time that you have to file. Just the issue that he spoke about that you encounter when sometimes you wait many years to file is you do. Um, you run into that documentation problem. Medical records might not be there. Police reports might not be there. The DA that your family dealt with might not be there anymore. There can, you can run into more issues versus when it might be a little bit easier for you to do it sooner. But there is no requirement. And I know sometimes with victims, it can be very difficult for them to come forward and even talk about what happened. And sometimes that can explain you know, the year's delay that we see. Um, sometimes people take that long to just kind of accept and then be ready to move forward. Yeah, I would
0: say the processing, right? Oh, something just happened and I'm processing it. What is this difficult governmental process you want me to sign up for? <laughs> what? Exactly, yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> so I'm glad to know that someone could start as, as soon as something were to have occurred. And then they also have no statute, but it's obviously best because Law enforcement doesn't keep police reports forever, and right. you know, so to get it taken care of sooner, will right? Because it's also we'll get into this next is, you know, it we've mentioned it's a lengthy process. Um, what's kind of a a general
1: timeline um, for the U visa? So generally, um, like I said, the first step would be submitting the certification to law enforcement. Under California law, they have ninety days to reply. Most departments reply faster than that. So, but they have up to that 90 days to reply. From there, you receive the certification back and you have six months to submit your application package now to immigration. So, that can, some people are, you know, are going to have all their documents right away and can submit right away. And other people were going to be pushing up against that six month expiration date. So, that part can kind of depend on the person and the case. But you would have six months basically to submit. From there, once it's submitted to immigration, you receive a paper saying that they've received your application. You receive a second paper asking you to go get fingerprints taken. And this is usually within, you know, four to eight weeks of submitting. Then after that, it's like radio silence for years. Um, It's literally taking five years right now for processing. So you won't hear anything on your case until the very end of that process. That does sound, we say
0: lengthy, like, oh, yeah. Um, a couple points of before, you know, some of the listeners think, oh, my gosh, what on earth, like, uh, what kind of benefits um, and protections are available once you even start this, you know, I submitted my my packet to immigration?
1: So there's technically no benefits to you once you've submitted your application. You just have an application that's pending. But in my experience, what I tell my clients is keep this piece of paper with you, and if for some reason you ever encounter ICE or the enforcement part of immigration, normally if they see that you have this type of application pending, that's enough for them to be like, "Uh, you know, this is not someone we want to to basically waste their time with and start a process against when they already have some legalization effort underway on their behalf. It doesn't technically give you a benefit, but I think that it, it does. And you have some peace of mind knowing that you have something that is pending and your number will eventually come up. Now, we talked about documents when applying. So
0: what are some of these? I mean, I know we talked about a law enforcement report, but what are some of maybe the, the personal
1: documents that a person would need? So there's a few things that you have to prove when you apply for a U visa. So you have to prove who you are. So you're going to need some identity documents. So your birth certificate, a photo ID, marriage certificate, if you've ever changed your name, any kind of name change documents, you have to kind of prove who you are. You have to prove that you've been the victim of a crime. So that's partly the certification by law enforcement, but that can also be all kinds of different records. It can be medical records. It can be police records. It can be court records. It can be newspaper articles. If it was ever in the newspaper, it can be all sorts of different records. So you want to prove that, you know, you were a victim of this crime and that you suffered because of that. And again, that's medical records, police records. Some of these records are going to kind of do double duty. They can prove multiple things. And then From there, um, if you are applying for, like, any family members, if you're adding them to your application, you have to prove who they are and how they're connected to you. So, like, if you're a mom and you're applying for your children, you would submit their birth certificates that show your name on there so they can see that there's a family connection. And then the other part of the U-Visa program is most people are going to be asking also for a waiver. And a waiver, I like to say, is, like, asking for forgiveness if you have any kind of immigration violation. So, like, for example, if you entered the country illegally, you can ask for forgiveness of that as part of the U-Visa program. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you have to show immigration that you're someone who deserves it. So they want to see proof that you're kind of a good person. That's how I explain it to my clients. <laughs> um, so that can be school records. It can be letters from church, letters from your friends and family, letters from the community. All those kinds of things can go into it and, and help your application. It can be proof you've been paying taxes, proof you have a job. So the the package you send to immigration can be quite large by the time you have all of these pieces addressed. And it can take some people a while to get these documents, uh, which is why I said usually we're pressing more towards the end of the six-month period than submitting everything in at the very beginning.
0: Well, thanks so much for that, Megan. Um, Chief Legero, do you have anything to add to that?
2: The, um, Megan's point, uh, on the identification is, uh, exactly one of the areas that we encounter some difficulties when we get a petition, you know, the the person will be using a, a maiden name or a different name than what we find in a police report. So it does take some time to sort that out, to make sure that we're dealing with the petitioner is the person that was the victim of the crime so that's that is one of the areas that we see problems with petitions pretty regularly
0: now something i suppose when we're talking about you know these personal identifying documents what happens if a person's documents are destroyed or they're lost is there a particular place maybe you refer them if they need to get those right and obviously if they're here how do they get the documents from
1: so that can really vary greatly from what country you're from, basically. So some countries will have embassies here in the U.S., and they'll allow you to get your documents from inside the United States through their embassy. Other countries will not. Um, so I would say the one of the embassies I deal with probably the most is uh, the Mexican consulate. And they are very good, usually, about helping people to get documents. You can have them issue you a birth certificate while you're here in the U.S., And this is a a recent change. This is only a few years ago. So before that, it was much more difficult. You had to call up a favor from a long-lost cousin and be like, "Will you go down to the (laughs) the clerk's office from where I was born and get this document from me? But now it's something that you can do yourself. Um, There's a way you would would make an appointment. Um, You would go to the consulate. They will ask you for some forms of ID if you've ever had an old expired one, you have any kind of pictures, and then they can issue you documents. So... They can issue uh, marriage certificates, birth certificates, um, sometimes divorce decrees, and passports, and also what they call a matricula consular ID, just just um, a form of government identification which most people will need in order to proceed either with immigration or you know just in your your general daily day to day life. Wow, I'm very glad that that. Uh
0: That change (laughs) takes a little bit of a barrier away. Yes. I was just picturing, you know, in my head, it's not always this, but (laughs) if someone's a victim of domestic violence and, you know, the suspect took their documents, kept them, burned them, did something. I mean, that person probably is like, Oh no, what am I going to do now? Um, So I'm glad to know that that's available. Now we talked about, you know, a lengthy process, um, just radio silence for about five years. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the reason for the lengthy process, if you
1: can speak to that? So the, the lengthy process is really created by Congress. So Congress places limits sometimes on specific types of visas and the amount that they'll allow per year. So sometimes you'll hear you know stories of people waiting years and years and years, and it's generally because they fell into one of these categories that's very limited but also very popular which means there are more people applying for it, then they have spaces available. And that creates a wait list. And that sometimes creates a very long backlog. So for particular, the U Visa program has a limit of 10,000 people per year. And there's generally between 50 and 60,000 people who apply for it every year. So the longer you wait the longer you wait. (laughs) So if you apply now and the wait time is five years, if you wait and apply two or three years from now, you could be looking at an eight or nine year wait time as the backlog continues to increase. Sometimes the backlog can suddenly shrink. So like if Congress sets a new limit, for example, then that uh, previous backlog can go away and applications can process faster. But as of right now, it's been 10000 per year and it's been set that way since uh, about 2008.
0: Oh my goodness. Now 2008 feels like it was, you know, like what, six years ago? It was not. <laughs> so it's like, oh, that's a very long time. <laughs> so, you know, now I'm kind of thinking of a question that, you know, we talked about a person's applying, but then you also mentioned earlier that you know, a person applying for a U visa can also include specific family members, probably depending on maybe ages or certain parameters set. Do those people go into the same queue, or is that a separate list that they're kind of a part of?
1: So family members do go into the same queue, but they get something called age-out protection. So depending on how you're applying for the person, they would be protected um, as part of your application, and they consider them as the date that, the age that they were the time you applied. So like, let's say you are younger than 21 and you're applying for your parents and your siblings with you, which you're allowed to do if you're younger than 21. Um, But you're like, let's say you're 19. So by the time your application comes up, now you're 23. So now it should shift and you should only be able to apply for your spouse and for your own children. But you'll actually get that protection from any family members that you included at that same time. So sometimes timing can be very important too, which would be another reason why it might be a good idea to speak to an immigration attorney. And they can talk to you about strategies about when you should include or not include family members. Um, But basically, if they are all submitted with the original package, they get protected um, and they're protected from aging out. Now let's say someone has a
0: child or another sibling is maybe born. Can they add in that that new
1: person, that new family member. It's going to depend on their age. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so if they are still younger than 21 and they have a new sibling, they would be able to include them. If they are now over 21 and they have a new sibling, they would not be able to include them because the person themselves has reached the age and no prior petition had been filed before.
0: Now I wanted to save this to the end. <laughs> or <More laughs> close to the end. What is the overall cost associated with getting a visa? And let's start with, you know, Without an attorney and then maybe with an attorney. And I know it can probably vary its a range, but right, because there has to be when you're making this application and there has to be probably some sort of payment that people make.
1: So it it is actually free to apply for the U visa program itself. There's no fee just to file the forms with immigration. There is a filing fee to file the waiver part that goes with it. And I would say 99% of my clients have some sort of issue, some, you know, something maybe even really small that they would want to include in a waiver. And then if that's the case, then there is a filing fee. Mm-hmm. Uh, the current filing fee is $930. There's a fee waiver available for that, but it takes immigration about two months to process your fee waiver. So what I tell people is if you're going to be submitting with a fee waiver, you need to be planning to submit your application even sooner. You definitely don't want to be waiting till right at the six-month mark get your fee waiver rejected, and then now you're having to go back to law enforcement to request another certification. So if you're trying with a fee waiver, definitely do it sooner. And this is one of the things that's been more difficult to get recently um, because of some rules that were put in place by the Trump administration. So that is essentially um, perhaps the only cost you would pay if you were filing it on your own. Um, You might pay some nominal fees to like get a, copies of police reports and things like that. Sometimes court records can be expensive to request if you're requesting those. Um, but there are oftentimes fee waivers and things you can do with those agencies as well. So that's essentially the the process or the cost if you're doing it on your own. If you're filing with an attorney, it's going to depend on what that attorney's filing fees are um, or what, you know, what they cost to to do the application for you. And that can vary, you know, Wildly by attorney, <laughs> right, right? It usually depends on on the attorney's experience in the area, their knowledge. You know how many years they've been doing it. Usually, prices tend to go up as an attorney has been doing it longer. Um, but it, it can really just depend. Um, I would say at least a few thousand. It would be typical. And you talked about you know
0: the you you submit the application and then it's radio silence. After that radio silence, are there more things that a person has to do to kind of check boxes in the process or do they, you know, have a U visa at the end of that?
1: So at the end of the five years, you just get approval and then you get put on the wait list for the visa. (laughs) So, (laughs) but once you're approved and you're on the wait list, you're eligible for a work permit, which for most people is the biggest, most important piece. A work permit gives you the ability to get your social security number, you can now work lawfully in the United States. And for most people, that's that's almost the majority of what they're worried about. So after five years, you can get the work permit, um, but you're still on the waiting list for the actual visa. When you get the actual visa, when your number finally comes up, they'll send you an approval notice, um, and that starts your U visa time. And then once you've had your actual visa for three years, then you can apply for your green card. When you actually apply for your green card, you have to go back to law enforcement a second time and ask them to sign another certification that says that you remained helpful. So, uh, <laughs> and sometimes this is going to be, you know, 12, 13 years yeah. after the fact. So um, it's it's just a good thing to remember that you will actually have to be going back to law enforcement a second time when you go to apply for your green card through the visa program. Gosh, we're talking like, oh yeah, do it soon and then. But regardless, once
0: you get further (laughs) in the process, you have to kind of do it (laughs) anyway. Um,
1: (laughs) The requirements are less strict when you're going back. Um, So you just have to show that you made an effort. So sometimes law enforcement can be hesitant to sign if it's been like, you know, 12 years since they heard from you. They might say, oh, we're not going to sign another one. And usually as long as you've made the request, that can be enough for immigration for your green card. But it does make it much easier if law enforcement cooperates and signs a second time for you. It's very good to know. Yes. <laughs>
0: now, I guess a little bit to get into it. You know, we kind of covered this overview of a very, like, maybe dense topic or, you know, we talked about, like, oh, it's this, this big, huge thing. Um, is there a best piece of, you know, information or advice you'd have for applicants
1: regarding U-Visa's? I would say um, I think seeking out assistance, even if you're going to be doing on your own eventually, is helpful. So even if you go have a, a, you know, a consult with an immigration attorney and they kind of walk you through what the process looks like, they can answer questions and they're going to be a qualified person to answer questions that might come up. Um, Because like you said, it, it can be a very dense topic and immigration law is constantly changing. Um, So I think it's helpful to speak with someone who knows that area of the law, even if you don't end up going with that person for your case, it can be helpful. Um, There are also definitely some, like I said, community organizations. I'm sure you guys can probably put some links to people, but I know here in Stanislaus County, um, the Haven Women's Center helps a lot. They have a UBISA workshop um, and they really can help you through that process. So I would say either, reach out to um, one of these community organizations or at least speak with an immigration attorney. I think it can be helpful before you file your paperwork
2: at the DA's office. We're, we're victim oriented and this is a program that's designed to help victims of primarily violent crimes to come forward and to report the crime and remain cooperative with law enforcement. So we can prosecute, you know, defendants that are out there committing these crimes. So, those victims, whether direct or indirect, they should take advantage of this process. Uh, it's available to them. The reason behind it is to ensure that they aren't further victimized, that they can come forward and that they can get assistance uh, when they need it. So I would encourage them to take advantage of that, you know, come forward, report the crime, You know, break the cycle of violence that they may be in. You know, and it's uh, it's available for them. And our role at the DA's office the, as a certifying agency, you know, we, we don't um, determine eligibility. That is up to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. They make the final determination. So our role, again, is limited, but we are here to help in the process to try and move the process for uh, those victims that need it.
0: That's great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and something um, you know, I know that right. We have FAQs, those frequently asked questions. So we'll definitely put a link in the description to immigrantjustice.org. That'll have many pages of questions that kind of come up. So that'll be there for people to check on as well. And you know, we just talked about that it's a long process, right? One, people have to who've just experienced a great trauma have to come forward. Um, just want to report to law enforcement, right? And then come forward to say, hey, can you help me with this? When I'm sure, you know, who knows what kind of fear they're facing around this kind of issue. And if maybe, let's say in a domestic violence situation, they were threatened with being deported, you know, and so coming forward, is there any kind of encouragement you would want to offer, right? With the clients that you work with me in and, you know, victims that you've worked with here that would be, you know, a little piece of hope
1: for, this, this big thing that they're going to take on. What I usually like to, to tell my clients is that it, it is a very difficult process, but it's also a very healing process. Um, a lot of times this can kind of help you to, like he said, break the cycle and actually escape from the abuser, especially in a domestic violence circumstance. And it allows you to kind of get some control back. Um, when I t- speak to victims of particularly violent crimes, you know, you often feel kind of lost and uncontrolled and like your, you know, your kind of world is crumbling. And this can kind of help you to take some of that power back, I, I believe. Um, it allows you to, to work with law enforcement, to have that confidence that you're not going to be deported um, and to have, um, you know, you, you can kind of take that step for yourself. And I think it can help with the healing process that happens.
0: So, you know, kind of as we're wrapping up, if there's anything additionally you think is important to kind of touch on that's maybe a little bit more nuanced, but also just as important to the process.
1: I think Jeff mentioned um, direct and indirect victims, and I just kind of want to speak briefly about what that is, because I think that that confuses people. So a direct victim is, is not that difficult to understand. That means you were the actual person the crime occurred to. I think what is more confusing is what are called indirect victims. Um Indirect victims can be um, a parent of a child who was a victim of something. So if you had, you know, a child who was molested or something, you're often the one who's dealing with law enforcement and encouraging the child to come forward And because of that, Congress has allowed you to be considered an indirect victim. This also occurs if you've been sometimes what we call bystander indirect victims. So this is, you know, you witnessed something that was very horrific. You witnessing that can be such a big crime that you yourself can qualify just as a witness to that crime. So the typical example of that would be, you know, if you witnessed a murder. Another um, indirect type of victim is sometimes parents or spouses of someone. Um, who was a victim of a crime and this is typically would be uh, again a, a homicide so like if a victim was murdered and their parents are undocumented they can often qualify as indirect victims of a crime
0: that's that's a very good point to make thank you so much for sharing mm-hmm. so you know the work that each of you do to support victims and their rights is so important you know it carries a great deal of responsibility and i imagine a lot of emotional weight mm-hmm. right Um, Just with the things you shared, it's clear that, you know, you care and have a passion for, you know, serving the members of our community who've been victimized. In victim services, a big thing that we stress because of the work that we do is making sure that we're, you know, taking care of ourselves and really just that value of what we like to say, you know, practicing self-care to keep ourselves like physically, emotionally healthy. What are some things that, you know, each of you do to kind of put that into practice?
1: Um, so for me, my biggest self-care is probably meditation. Um, it was, you know recommended by my therapist um, after you know dealing with some of these issues because um, especially when you deal uh, directly with victims a lot, you can become um, what they call secondary trauma. So you can kind of sometimes take the trauma from the victims you work with and carry it home. So um, she highly recommended meditation, and it's something that I practice daily. And I would say it's it's made a huge difference. And, and been one of the best things I do for my self care. Mm. Getting some mindfulness practices and just. Yeah, just taking that time to kind of slow down, um, and pay attention to your thoughts and realize that, you know, you have your brain makes thoughts, yeah. <laughs> it, but it's your job if you want to listen to them or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and just paying attention to that space and, and being very mindful of that has, has been very helpful for mm. me and myself. Yeah. Focusing yeah. on the present
0: moment that. You're safe. You're here. Exactly. That's wonderful. Yep. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I I agree. You know, you need that opportunity to decompress. You know, and kind of be able to put some of the things that you've had to deal with throughout your day, and set that aside. So, you know, any type of distraction or something that takes your mind off of that is has been helpful for me. It's podcasts or audio books or reading or going for a run or whatever just something to kind of help you clear your mind and you know recenter yourself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Some Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some good comedy specials. Uh <laughs> debriefing with coworkers. Yeah, so laughter, right? We, yeah. We're feeling better. Yeah. Good. Um We hope to see you again on the next episode of It's Your Right. This podcast was brought to you by the Stanislaus County District Attorney's Office Victim Services Unit. Here to help, support, and empower.